Last week it was my goal to teach through the first 12 verses of chapter 5. I only got five verses through, so I had planned to finish First John today. Well, I no longer plan to do that, but today I would like to cover verses 6 through 15. Uh, some of those we discussed last week. Uh, if you're using a blue Bible on the table uh, there, it is on uh, page 1,125. And next week we plan to finish 1 John. Next week we will cover verses uh, 16, you know what, no, there'll be some overlap. We'll cover verses 14 through 21 next week. Next week will be verses 14 through 21. So last week I felt strongly that verses 3, 4, and 5 were some of the most helpful verses for us and where we're at together Um, I I felt like they were some of the most, they they spoke strongly to some of the struggles that we as individuals have. Let me say it like that. I felt like it addressed some things and and spoke to some things that were likely to transform us in great ways if we grab hold of those things. If you missed it, it is online. I can send you a link. If you don't know where it's at, just let me know. But last week, we learned... That if someone has experienced the new birth, if they've been born of God, then they will overcome the world by faith in Christ. If someone has been born of God, experienced new birth, they will persevere until the end. Last week, we examined what faith is. We examined what faith does. And we examined what it is not. We saw that, I, I share this as, not as a complete way of thinking about faith, but as a helpful way. We saw that faith in Christ requires knowledge, agreement with that knowledge, and also personal trust. That what you've heard about Jesus and what he did for you is actually true for you. So we saw knowledge, agreement, and trust. Say those three words with me today like we did last week. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. One more time. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. And the Bible teaches that those three things are necessary in order to have saving faith in Christ. Last week we saw that saving faith is not just having mental assent or only agreement to... A number of propositions or facts, but saving faith also involves personal transformation at some level that will be visible at some point. It's not always visible right at the beginning, but over six months, a year, two years, ten years, we're going to see, okay, that they're being changed by God because they've been born of God. And last week we also saw that faith doesn't Clean up the outside without transforming the inside. Because every one of us in here, we can get ourselves polished up on the outside, especially if it's only for an hour or two on Sundays. But we can even polish ourselves up more than that. And all the while, we can do that without spiritual life in us. We can do certain things to do better in our own strength. But we can never do the things that God wants us to do in a way that glorifies God without having His strength in us. 
So verses 3, 4, and 5 were so foundational to John, the heart and soul of what John has been saying throughout this letter. And we get into verse 6, and obviously what we're going to read today is, is uh, springing from what we read last week. It is very, very much uh, connected. So let's read together 1 John verses 6 through 15. Uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 15. This is he who came, talking about Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Take this, take a few moments, a few minutes, read this passage to yourself, and when the time's right, your table leader will begin the discussion. So verses 6 through 12, we see these verses telling us very much who Jesus is, and how we know that he is who he says he is. John has been saying over and over again that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And, and the great act, the great thing that the Son of God did was that he gave his life up on the cross and he rose again three days later. Purchasing our freedom from sin and our salvation from or, or for us. So he talks a lot about witnesses and testimony. There's language of a courtroom here. And in a courtroom, somebody has to make a decision. I've had to testify before, and just once, but I believed that something was true, and I had personal first-hand experience that one thing was true, and I had lots of reasons to believe that what the other person was saying was not true. So I went up to the bench and I gave testimony under oath that something was true and that something was not. I had a testimony. I was a witness. Some of you have been there. But we're familiar with this language. We get to verse 6. What is the water? What's the blood? What's, you know, really, I think verses 6, 7, and 8 are almost three of the most difficult verses in First John to interpret. 
A lot of reasons for that. If, you're, if you want some backstory on that, see me afterward and I can share a little bit more with you than what I'll have time to get into today. But in verse 6, he says that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. This is He who came by water and blood. And then he goes to say, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So he points something out there that, that is, there's a reason for it. He goes on to write, The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So we have multiple witnesses that are in agreement. When you have multiple witnesses that are in agreement, that's significant, isn't it? So what's the water about? What's the blood about? Is this about the Trinity? If you have the King James Bible or the New King James Bible, you're going to think this is probably about the Trinity. My understanding, after much digging into this, and when we first started 1 John earlier this year, I, I spent a load of time digging into this. But what I understand is that even though the, the triune nature of God is throughout the Scriptures, I don't think these three verses have anything to do with the Trinity. If... I want to show someone this is why I believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all divine. I'm not going to turn to these verses. I'm going to turn to dozens or hundreds of other ones. But I think what John is saying here is that Jesus was baptized and God spoke, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the blood, I believe, is referring to the crucifixion. Now, some people think it's to water baptism for us today and the Lord's Supper today. Okay, there's an argument for that. I don't buy it. I have some reasons why I don't buy that, but I don't think it's completely far out. There's a number of other interpretations. The truth is, John doesn't tell us what the water, what the witness of the water, what it actually is. He doesn't tell us what the witness of the blood actually is. That's not in here. I do think that it's the, the, Jesus' baptism and his death because of the nature of the false teaching that was going on within the churches that, that John wrote to. Remember to talk about the Antichrist. Joe told us uh, three and a half, four months ago that there were false teachers in this church. And we've seen that. We've seen that. We saw false teachers with American gospel over the last two weeks. If you weren't there and you want to borrow that, let me know. I'm going to give it to someone later today. But, you know, that documentary series is exposing some of the false teaching that we've all been exposed to. But we've seen in 1 John there's false teachers. And what we think, based on other historical accounts, based on other evidence outside of Scripture, you know, it lines up with what John is telling us about the Antichrist. But, but what they were probably teaching is that Jesus Christ was a normal person like us and that he wasn't God in the flesh. But when he came up out of the waters of baptism when he was around 30 years old, three years before he died, that when the dove who came down upon him, that that was the divine nature of God coming to be upon him. And that was when he began to walk in the divine nature. That was when he became the Christ. That's when he became the Messiah. That's when he became the Son of God. But prior to that, he was not. And they teach that he lived as the Christ for almost three years. 
But right before the crucifixion of Jesus, when he was nailed to the cross on that hill, on that awful Friday, right before he died, right before he went through the worst of his sufferings, is that the Christ left. And the Christ went to be back up to God. And John is saying, I believe, I, my understanding is that John is saying, no, this is not how it is. You see in verse 6, he says, not by the water only. I think he's saying that because he wants everyone there to know that the baptism testifies to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. But that's not it. There's more to it than that. The blood also testifies to the fact. It is a witness in a court where people are called to make a decision. It is a witness. John is saying that the blood he shed was also a witness that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you understand the Old Testament, you know that the Messiah was to suffer. But the problem was the Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't have that understanding of it. They weren't good students of it. There were a few, but many of them didn't, and they missed that part. But there in the middle of verse 6, it says, Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. I believe that John is saying that the water and the blood, the baptism and the crucifixion, are, are, are witnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ is divine in every way and that He's always been divine. And that God suffered so that we could be saved. Because the implication of what the false teachers were teaching is that God is unwilling to suffer for the weight of sin. Well, that's the gospel. That's the good news. If Jesus wasn't God and the Son of God at the crucifixion, then we've got no hope and we need to go home and just, I need to go get another job. And, and we, you know, we're, we're just done here. You know, we, we've got some firewood, these books on top of the table here with us. If the false teachers are right, then, then, we have a, then, then we're all wrong in here today. But John is writing to say that Jesus is the Christ. That He did suffer. That He did die. And then he goes on at the end of verse 6 to bring up a third witness. And this is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies. You see that courtroom language again where someone has to make a decision. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. They agree. The baptism, the crucifixion, and the Holy Spirit, then and now. See, we can't see the baptism. We can't see the crucifixion. We can see it a little bit right here in a different way. But we can't see it like they did. But the Spirit, not only was He active then, but He's active today. And he reminds us of all that Jesus tells us. In verse 9, he goes on to write about like courtroom language, testimony, things like that. And verse 9 is pretty simple. I'm glad, because we need something simple sometimes. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? I know you all well enough that I'm going to believe 99% of what you tell me. Right? Probably 100%. But is it right for me to just totally not believe you if I have no reason to not trust you? Isn't that part of how relationships work? We should trust people unless we have a reason not to. 
There's a lot of different directions I could go from that. I'm not. I'm going to stop there. But for the sake of illustration, if I receive what you tell me, knowing that you're imperfect, knowing that at times we have lied before, if I'm going to receive the things that you share with me, doesn't it make sense I don't believe God? Numbers 23, 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie. In Hebrews, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. But here we have the voice of God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased when Jesus gets baptized. We have a number of other times where God spoke clearly when Jesus was alive. And then we have the Holy Spirit who's all throughout the world gathering God's people to himself and teaching you who Jesus is. I believe verse 9 just gives a very simple illustration. Isn't it true that we regularly accept the testimony of man? Isn't it true and quite common for us to believe other people? And if so, doesn't it make sense that we should believe God and trust in what he says? It does. And there's three witnesses that John has spoken of. We get to verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Most likely, I think that's a reference to the Antichrist that he spoke of uh, late in chapter 2 and early on in chapter 4. He goes on to write in verse 10, Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. One commentator puts it like this. The writer, John, cannot allow that one can profess belief in God as did his opponents, yet reject God's testimony in his Son. We can't say that we believe God and reject part of it, particularly the most important part. Verse 11, he goes on about the testimony. This is what's been said. This is what's been reported. This is what's true. And Hope Fellowship, I want you to call you to believe this today. You already do, but I want us to believe it even more. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. I think this is the first time eternal life has been mentioned in this passage so far. Yes, it is. So God gave us eternal life. And the next few verses are going to talk about eternal life. God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. See, we're still we're talking about Jesus all day long here. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In John chapter 17, it was the night before Jesus died, just hours or minutes before he was arrested. Jesus prays this in verse 3. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Is it just getting to go be in heaven with God? Is it getting to, oh, I don't have to go to hell? And I can live forever, so this is great? Is that eternal life? Yes. But is that the essence of eternal life? No. Is that the most important thing about eternal life? Is it all about you and what you get to do and what you don't get to do? Or is it about God and who you get to be with? See, the greatest thing about heaven is not that you aren't going to have to be inconvenienced anymore. It's not that you're not going to have to struggle with sin anymore. It's that you're going to be with God. In a way, you think being with God right now is great, and isn't it? How much deeper and greater and more beautiful will this be? May this be our hope. This is eternal life. That we may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, 
whom God has sent. I think we get off on this a little bit. We, some of us need to adjust our thinking. I need to adjust my thinking. The greatest thing about eternal life is not that we don't have to go to hell. It's not just that we get to live forever. But the greatest thing is that we will get to know God in Jesus Christ whom He sent even better than we already do. See, we can see God and know God today. But how much more so will it be in the new heavens and the new earth and throughout all, all eternity? And John 3.36 says that eternal life begins at the moment that we're born of God. Now, it is common to think that eternal life is just what I'm going to get after I die. But that's not the case. Eternal life begins at the moment that you're born of God. It's kind of like saying that, that human life begins at the moment of conception. You know, which is what I believe is true. But when you're born of God, when God changes you, when He grabs hold of you in that special, mysterious way that nobody truly understands, except for a little bit. That's when eternal life begins. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ right now? Then I tell you, eternal life has begun for you. You have eternal life now. And I love how the how um, verse 11 says it. This life at the end of verse 11, it says, this life is in his son. One of the things that American gospel said is that Christianity is not Jesus plus good works. Now, good works are a part of our Christianity. But, but let me say it like this. The gospel is not Jesus plus be good. The gospel is not Jesus plus miracles. And miracles may come, and they often do. And especially in a place where the gospel's never been preached before. But it can be here today, too. The gospel is not Jesus plus health. If you come to Jesus, he's going to fix all your problems. The gospel is not Jesus plus prosperity or wealth in materialistic or financial terms. Paul, the apostle, who was one of the, the, the greatest men of God who've ever lived, as far as I'm concerned, um, he had times where he had plenty, and he had times where he had, was in want. And he gave up quite a bit for Jesus. And he didn't get everything that he wanted. We can't think that the Christianity, that Christianity or the gospel or eternal life is just about us getting what we want. The essence of the gospel is not Jesus plus. The essence of the gospel is Jesus and what he did for you. And the invitation or the command to come and believe in him. And belong to him. End of verse 11. This life is in his son. So in most of your Bibles you've got a chapter or a paragraph division between verses 12 and 13. Sometimes those things throw us off. But verse 11 and 12 is very much about eternal life. And verse 13 is no different. Let me read 12 and 13 together. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I see verse 13 saying loud and clear that we can know that we're saved. There was a time in my walk with God that I thought anyone who said they can know for sure that they're saved was arrogant, 
or copy, or at worst, a Pharisee. Well, John wrote a whole book of the Bible so we can know that we're saved. So I had to adjust some of what I was believing. Now, we're all in different places with this. I think, generally speaking, that you know, we're converted, we come to Christ, and we begin to grow in Christ over years. I think there comes a point, for some people it's pretty close, for some people it's some years. But I think there comes a point, as we grow in our faith, we realize that we are saved. Not because of how good we are, but because of what God has done. And if it's if, if, if me knowing for sure that I'm saved, that I have a relationship with God, is dependent upon Him and not me, then how much easier is it to know for sure that I'm saved? It's so important. And as we're going to see in verses 14 and 15, knowing that we are saved gives us confidence when we pray. Knowing that He's my Father and that He loves me, and that he's pleased because of Christ, not because of how good I have it together, since I don't always have it together. But knowing that makes it easier for me to call on my, call on my Father. I have confidence when I go before him because I know, I know that I belong to him. So verse 13, he says, I write these things. What are these things? I think these things are everything that he's written thus far, so far within this letter. Over and over again, he's given different tests or different things that you can examine about yourself to, to see if you are a Christian or not. Let me just summarize these things quickly. In chapter 1, John tells us that we know that we have eternal life because we walk in the light. He also says in chapter 1, we know that we have eternal life because we are concerned about sin and repentance and confession. And all these start off with, we know. I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I've got 12 of them. John gives 12 things that will help us know whether we're saved or not. Are these things true of you? In chapter 2, he says, we know that we are in the Son because we regularly keep God's commands. Notice that's not perfectionism. In chapter 2, he says, we know that we are in the Son because we walk as Christ walked when he was here. We look like him. And we act like Him. In chapter 2, he also says, We know that we are in Jesus because we love other Christians. We desire their fellowship and we seek to serve them in deed and in truth. Chapter 2, he also says, We know that we are in Jesus because we don't love the world or the things in the world. He also says, We know that we have eternal life because we believe that Jesus is the Christ and that He has come in the flesh. If you know that, if you believe that, that's a sign. He wrote that so that we can know that we have eternal life. He goes on to say that we know that we have eternal life because we don't leave the church family and never return. Chapter 3, he says, we know that we have eternal life because our lives are marked. It is characteristic of of our lives. Our lives are marked by a longing and a practical pursuit of holiness on a personal level. Chapter 3, he goes on to say, we know that we have eternal life because we aren't practicing sin but are practicing righteousness. In chapter 4, he says, we know that we have experienced the new birth because we overcome the world and we press on toward God in faith. We're continually moving forward to Him. And earlier on in chapter 5, he says, we know that we're Christians because we believe the testimony that God has given concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all about. If we have this assurance... 
of God's relationship with us. If we are convinced that we belong to Him because of what He's done, then it changes everything. So many insecurities, and I can talk all day about this, but so many insecurities that we live with will vanish. So many of our emotional struggles are going to go away. Who could deal with fewer emotional struggles? I got my hand up. <laughs> all right? I, you know, and, and as we grow, we do. We deal with less. But John's application in this letter of us knowing that we're saved, the application that he mentions is our confidence in prayer. That's what we get in verses 14 and 15. We saw it at the end of chapter 3. I think it was one other place too. But verses 14 and 15, this is the confidence. So if we know that we have eternal life, like verse 13 says, verse 14 says, this is the confidence that we have about ourselves. I'm not getting funny looks. Is verse 14 talking about the confidence that we need to have about ourselves? What's our confidence to be in? Verse, God. God. See, I said that just like I was saying the truth, didn't I? It's, it's, you know, it's easy for us to place our confidence in ourselves. And no doubt there are people on TV and in our community and there are Facebook pages that you see that... They want to get you to put your confidence in yourself. But our confidence must be in God. Verse 14, the first part, this is the confidence we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Verse 15, there's some things about this I don't understand. I dealt with some of the ideas in verse 15 in Mark 11 last year. You can listen to that if you'd like to. But I went much deeper into verse 15 and the ideas in there with Mark 11 when he said, Jesus said, speak to this mountain and it'll go. Um, I, I can't go into that deeply today, but verse 14 and 15 should give us confidence that God will do the things that we ask for. And what, what John writes, this is the confidence we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's a lot of verses that we see like that in many places in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Matthew 7, 7, which I preached on in May, says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Does that mean you can ask for and seek and knock for anything you want to? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But a little bit later in Matthew 7, he's talking about that father-child relationship. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. That's the basis of, verse, uh, of saying ask, seek, and knock. Because of that relationship, we can ask. John chapter 14, 13. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean to ask something in the name of Jesus? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think sometimes we treat that as this little formula that if we do that and say it right, that God has to respond. Personally, I've rarely say that at the end of a prayer just because my understanding of it is that if I am in a proper relationship with God if I am not walking in rebellion towards Him then I'm in His name I'm not going to be asking for anything dumb that I shouldn't be asking for the old Garth Brooks song sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers 
You know, he's out with his wife, who he loves, and he sees this an old flame of his that he used to want so much, and he realizes, whoa, man, I, my life's a wreck. I'm glad God didn't give me her like I used to be praying for. See, sometimes my kids ask me for things that I know aren't good for them, and I love them enough to say no. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us than I love my flesh and blood kids? And I love them a lot, as y'all know. How much more does God love us? If we ask something according to His will, as verse 14 says, He hears us. And verse 15 goes on to say that in whatever we ask, if He hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. In these, in verses 13, 14, and 15, he says that prayers are effective because we're in a right relationship with God. If we are in a right relationship with God, then we're not going to ask for something that God doesn't want to do. Because as we walk with God, the things that He wants become the things that we want. God changes us, and our desires line up more according with his desires. What is the will of God? Okay, I knew a pastor one time from Tennessee. He couldn't say will. He said wheel. <laughs> he preached a whole sermon when it was a church that he went to before we started dating. But he, he preached a whole sermon on God's wheel. <laughs> so, you, you know, but what is the will of God? It's his desire. It's what he wants. The Greek word that is translated the will of God is commonly translated throughout the New Testament as will, W-I-L-L. I'm sorry, as desire. It's translated will and desire. So, So these things that we get from these two verses help me practically in my prayers. About two years ago, I was on my way to a meeting with someone in this room. It was one of those meetings where I had to share something that, you know, I was concerned how the person would receive it. And I had my radio off. I was five minutes away, and I'm just, I'm trying to pray, but I'd been on the road for five or ten minutes already. And I, like, what do you pray? How do you do this? You know, I'm like, God, I don't really know what to ask here. I don't want to come across as a jerk. I don't want to say it wrong. You know, I don't want the person to be defensive. I don't think the person's proud. I think they'll respond. It was a word of correction. And I'm just like, God, I just wanted to turn around and go have lunch with somebody else. And I was trying to pray, and I couldn't. And all of a sudden, the verse that's in First Thessalonians, I think in chapter 4, Paul is praying for the church, and he says, I'm praying the, the will of God that, God, that you would be sanctified. And to sanctify something means to be set someone apart for holiness. And I thought, you know what? That's what God wants in this situation. That's what God wants for everyone in the church family, all His people and throughout the world. He wants our holiness. He wants us to be sanctified. So for the next four or five minutes, here's what I pray. God, I pray that you would sanctify us. Amen. Not just the person I was meeting with. Because I had something to learn that day too. But God, I pray that you would sanctify Joe. I pray that you'd sanctify Creed. I pray that you'd sanctify Bella and Jean and Constance and Aunt Janice and everyone. I pray for their sanctification. It's a biblical prayer. You can't go wrong. Okay, Wednesday nights, when we gather here to pray, we always pray prayers of Scripture. They're incorporated. I plan it. 
And, and, and some of them are, sometimes there's, they come spontaneously to me. Some of you, they come to you and you pray. You pray scripture. When, when you don't know what to pray, when you aren't sure what the will of God is, find scripture and pray that. Pray the Psalms. I was talking about emotional battles earlier. There are a lot of emotional battles in the Psalms. <laughs> and David and others were processing those things. So read through the Psalms. You'll eventually find someone that feels something like the way you feel. Pray what they're praying, and it might help you. At the end of our prayer meetings, we pray the Lord's Prayer. In my house, almost every single day as a family, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Why do we pray that? Because I know that prayer is according to the will of God. And I know that God hears us. And then the more I pray those things, the more I know that He is answering. Church, God loves you. And John wrote everything he wrote so that you can know that you're saved. And if you know that you're saved, then what powerful incentive we have to run to our God and to pray to Him. Let's do that right now.